you would, stand with me as we read Psalm 100. It's likely a familiar psalm to you. Um, and I'm, I'm going to depart from the uh, text, the ESV text, just a little bit on the front part of it, but I'll, I'll read reading from the ESV. Um, as we uh, begin to look at this passage, uh, God has some incredible good news for you. Uh, but before that, I want to ask you a question that's familiar to you also. What's the chief end of man? That's right. The main reason we're here on earth is to glorify God and enjoy the Lord forever. And so does your life actually resemble this? What does your life say to those around you? What have you been singing about, as it were? What do you get emotional about lately? What have you wanted to shout about? Would those around you who work around you, live around you, testify this is the main purpose you're living out? And we all struggle with this at some real profound level, and God's giving us instruction on how to do this better. So that's what Psalm 100 is about. This is what God says. Make a shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Therefore, enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Please join me as I pray. Lord God, I praise You for Your Word that You give us such an incredible call to rejoice over You, to enter into Your presence. I pray, Lord, that You would now take my feebleness and speak through me and that You would open the ears of everybody who's listening and give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe so we might grow to love You more, we might grow to understand Your love for us better, and we might live zealously for You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, because I don't know many of you very well, as a matter of fact, I don't know hardly any of you, is that the ones I came with? Uh, there's some things I'm going to be saying and doing that are a little bit risky, and I'm going to start with the sports analogy, which is always a little risky coming to a new place, but I love sports, and football season's right around the corner, and so when I was thinking about this psalm, I was thinking about one of my first memories of my dad, and it was my dad hollering, Woohoo! <laughs> And I was like, and he just kept going. He couldn't stop. And I, I remember as a little kid hearing him, and I was like, I ran to my mom and was like, is dad okay? Like, what is going on? Did something happen? And she said, yes, something happened. The Ole Miss Rebels just scored a touchdown. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what in the world? Crazy. And he continued to holler like a banshee every time there was an Ole Miss Rebel football team, even though usually they lost. Imagine going to a stadium and where the teams are terrible and everyone is either completely apathetic or angry at the team. They're complaining all the time. They're arguing with one another and they're booing all the time. Would that make you want to go to the stadium? A few years ago, I got to go to Tiger Stadium, LSU Stadium, 
And I'm an Ole Miss fan. That's, I grew up that. It's in my blood, even though I didn't go there. That's, but when I went to Tiger Stadium and they scored touchdown, everybody's giving each other high fives. I became an LSU Tiger fan. Why? Because I saw and experienced the contagiousness of joy. Now, that joy is super, super, very superficial. It's about football. It's about a bunch of 18 to 22-year-olds who no longer play there anymore. It really is meaningless in the end of the day. And yet, if you listen to LSU football fans, you wouldn't think it's meaningless, for it's a source of great joy, and it's contagious. Imagine what it would be like to show up to church and to worship, and everybody's arguing, and everybody seems dour, and it seems like everybody can't wait to get out of the door to get to whatever's coming next. And they're not arguing about things that seem to matter all that much, but it seems to be somewhat pedantic. That's largely what the unbelieving world looks at the church and sees and experiences. But imagine even more so what it would be like for God to show up and see this among his people. Today, God tells us that he longs for something more from us, something more for us, and so he instructs us in worship. What are we to do? And today we're going to see from Psalm 100 what we're to do in worship, how we're to worship, and why we're to worship. Now, I know this is a super familiar psalm, and so you're like, Howard, I already know this. And I'm like, well, good. Me too. Let's dig in and actually figure out how to apply it to our lives, because that's what it's all about. So what are we to do in worship? We see the call to worship, the call of worship in, in this passage, throughout this passage. And he gives us several things to do. What's the first thing he tells us to do? Well, the, the verse I memorized when I was a kid was from the NIV, shout for joy to the Lord. And that's the first and primary calling of what we're to do in worship. We're to sing praise to make a joyful noise. Uh, in, in, in the Hebrew, it's a little bit uh, kind of a, a weird verse, but it just says, make joyful noises to the Lord, to Yahweh. gives us his personal name. And so worship is to be marked by shouting about something, getting excited about something, namely the Lord, and singing to him, shouting to him. But it doesn't just stop there. It tells us that that's not just the calling of God's people, it's the calling of all the earth. The whole earth has reason to shout to God, to the Lord, because he is good, which we'll look at later. Not only are we to shout to the Lord, but it also tells us something we're to do in verse 2. It says, serve the Lord with gladness. That we're not only to shout to him, we're to serve him. We're, uh, some versions would say worship him, but really at the heart of it, it means service. And it's not just talking about what we're to do when we come together as God's people. It's what we're to do all the time. Because of God and who he is, we are to serve the Lord and shout to him. It tells us also in verse 2 that we are to come into his presence with singing. Which causes us to think about, like, what are you singing about? What Are you singing at all? I have five girls who live in my house. They sing frequently. Okay, sometimes it's singing praises to God. Sometimes it's singing some crazy new song that I don't even know what it is. And I'm trying to figure it out. Okay, but they're, they're often singing 
But God wants us to come into His presence and not just come with a dour look or with dour spirit, but with singing, with, with rejoicing, with, with something to sing about. Verse 3 tells us that the, the fourth call that we have in worship is to know. The word in Hebrew is yada. It means it has a pretty broad um, range of meaning, but at the end of the day, it means to experience. We're to experience the Lord. Again, experience Yahweh. Know Yahweh. In verse 4, it goes on and says, Give thanks to Him. And sixthly, we are to bless His name. So we get a picture of what we're to do in worship. We're to shout. We're to serve. We're to come into His presence with singing. We're to experience God. And the response is going to be giving thanks to Him and praising His name, blessing His name. So that's what we're to do in worship. So how are we to worship? What's to be the comportment of worship? How are we to handle ourselves when we're worshiping God? And again, it it unpacks this throughout this passage. It says to shout to the Lord, but not just to shout, but to shout with joy to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth. We're to worship with joy. We're to not only worship with joy, we're to serve with gladness. That, that when we serve, we don't just like pull up our bootstraps and do it. We do it because we're abounding in gladness. Do you know that gladness? We're to enter His presence with singing. You get the picture that's being painted here, Right? That we have something so magnificent, we can't contain ourselves. We're like my dad when he's listening to the Ole Miss football games. He said, we have something a lot better than the Ole Miss Rebels. We know the Lord, Yahweh, the creator of all that is. And so we come with joy. We come with gladness. We come with singing. We come, verse 4, with thanksgiving. Abounding in thankfulness to God. And we come with praise. Come into His courts with praise. You can't come empty-handed. You've got to come excited about the Lord. Now, in Presbyterianism, we talk about worship, and we talk about the regulative principle of worship. What's the regulative principle of worship? That basically, all worship has to be guided by Scripture. So along these lines, what is this passage telling us what we should do here? Okay, it's telling us something very un-Presbyterian-like in my experience. That we're to be so giddy that we're abounding in joy. Now, sometimes at Presbyterians, abounding in joy looks like taking notes. Okay, and that's not bad. That's a good thing. If studying's your deal, but... But it's saying we've got to come into His presence and realize the, 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 the treasure we have in such a way that we abound in joy and thanksgiving and praise and gladness that it marks the entirety of our lives because that's the kind of, that's how God wants us to worship Him. He's really not okay with His people not being excited about who He is and what He's done. 
Our worship is to be marked by joy, singing, thanksgiving, praise with gladness that drives us to faithfully serve Him all our days. It's to be what marks our services of worship. Okay, and, and you know, worship is beautiful. But it's also to be the thing that marks the worship of God well beyond the services of worship to all of life. So our entire lives should be marked with joy and gladness and service and singing and thanksgiving and praise. Which brings us back to like your real life. Do the people around you have any kind of sense that you're excited about Yahweh, about the Lord? Do they have a sense that you're almost giddy about something that God's done for you? I'm not saying that we mark like that we should be embarrassed when we're grieving, okay? I'm not saying that. But if our lives aren't fundamentally marked by rejoicing, a deep joy, then something's wrong. And God's not okay with it. He's telling us, I want something more from you. I want something more for you. Now, some of you may have objections. You may say, Howard, you don't even know me. Lord, maybe you don't even know me. My life is hard. My life is really hard. My life, my heart is heavy. And here's the thing I would tell you. Every audience that's ever heard Psalm 100 has had hard and broken lives. God is not about rebuking your grief and your heavy heartedness. But he is saying something that if you come to truly know him, you have more reasons for rejoicing than weeping. There was a season in my life, there have been two seasons in my life, where uh, I became a leader in the church and then in the school, and for some reason, even though I try to be nice to everybody, people started attacking me. It's terrible. And in that, I was driven into some mild to great depression and was sad, deeply sad. And in the middle of both those experiences, God reminded me of something profound. He's, he reminded me that as much as you've been wronged by others, Howard, you've been more right about Jesus than anything can compare. And the scriptures tell us that, right? The sufferings of this present age aren't worthy to be compared to the glories to be revealed to us. They're actually preparing us for a way to glory, not worthy to be compared. As deeply as you've been wronged by others, you've been more righted by the Lord. As screwed up as you might be, I'm screwed up too. My girls can tell you that plenty well. Jack Miller would tell you, cheer up. You're much worse than you actually know, than you actually think. But you're more loved than you ever imagined. That's really the heart of the scriptures. That's the heart of what he's telling us here. The reason we rejoice is because we're more loved than we could ever imagine. And we're going to get to that in a second. But you don't understand, Howard, who, who I am by nature. I'm a curmudgeon. I'm grumpy. And here's the thing is the gospel takes grumpies and causes them even to rejoice. And when people who are grumpy rejoice, the world notices. You don't understand, Howard, we're Presbyterian. But the Lord would say to us, no, if, if you're missing out, if you're, this is not what you're coming to me in worship with, if this is not the comportment you have, not only in the service of worship, but in all of life increasingly, the problem is not that I don't understand you, it's that if you're 
not doing this and doing this in this way, it's because you maybe don't understand who I am, the Lord would say to us. Which brings us to the rest of the psalm, the last point, which is why are we to worship? What compels worship? What's the compelling source of worship? And for many of you, you haven't been shouting about the right things. You, your worship and your life have been marked not so much by joy or gladness or thanksgiving and singing and praise, but maybe an apathy or a, a complaining spirit or even. We're living through a pandemic. We all are living through really hard times and everybody seems to be frustrated. I don't know if that's you personally. I don't know if that's people in your world, but like I lead a school and I love the parents and they've been living in this hard thing and they're just frustrated and complaining and, and kind of embittered at life. And so we have all these fights about mask, no mask, and all these fights. And I, 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 don't, I, don't, I want to like be in uh, Switzerland. I don't want to take a position, but I have to. But the problem is, is that our lives have become more known for what we complain about than what we rejoice in. And when we, that's the case, it's because we've forgotten who we're rejoicing over and whose we are. And so how can you get there? I'm not here to beat you up. God's not here to beat you up. As a matter of fact, you won't be able to get there just by giving yourself a lecture on the need to be more joyful in worship. Man, I, gotta, I forgot the joyful rule. I forgot it again. No, how are you going to get there? And it, and it tells us the key in verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. Know the Lord. Experience the Lord. To, the word know, yada, means, means an experiential relationship to what we're studying, namely the Lord. Here's the truth. Augustine said it so profoundly, his confessions unpack it beautifully. Lord, you have made us for yourself so that our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The key is learning to run to him, to rest in him. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. We, we, we recited it today in our song. Come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden in what? I will give you rest for your souls. He says again in John 6, if anyone finds themselves hungering, and, and Jesus is using that term really broadly, if you find yourself lacking, hungering, then come to me, the bread of life. My flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Whoever is coming to me will find themselves no longer hungering. Whoa. That's a pretty bold, bold claim. Is that your experience? Jesus is inviting you to come to him. That's the whole secret in the Christian life is come to me. That's how we get to this joy that abounds in praise. C.S. Lewis said it this way in reflecting on the Psalms and commanding us to worship Him. God is enjoying us, inviting us to enjoy Himself. Lewis looked at the Psalms and thought, what kind of person is constantly demanding worship? And it really troubled him for a while until he realized God's commands for us to worship Him is Him inviting us to enjoy Him. 
Is that your experience? So the question is, is are you in learning to enjoy Him? What are we to enjoy about God? It tells us here in this passage, verse 3, it says that we're made by Him. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. God's your creator. He's your sustainer. That's a cause for deep rejoicing. Everybody on earth has that cause. And not only are we made by Him, but if you have come to know the Lord through Christ, there's some really important things it tells us about you here. Not only have we been made by Him, but we belong to Him. It tells us that in, in verse the end of the rest of verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. We are His. We belong to Him. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. The Lord is our shepherd. He is our home. He's our Father. We belong to Him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a younger kid, I really just wanted to belong somewhere. I was pretty awkward. I was difficult. I have a, a daughter who's just like me. Okay, my, uh, my other two daughters can probably amen that. And the thing is, is my daughter just wants to belong. So she will bug you until you talk to her, until it's frustrating. But all she wants is for somebody to love her, to belong. And here's the crazy good news. My daughter Haven has a place of belonging that's greater than her sisters, greater than her dad and mom. She has a place of belonging with the Lord through Jesus. Jesus invites us in in a way he will never let us, he'll always let us in, never let us down. This is the Lord that we serve. And so that's what he calls you to rejoice in. To know the Lord and to know he is for you and he's with you. And finally, we see in verse 5 the, the reason why we're to rejoice. He gives all these things and he says four, which means, listen, this is the reason. For the Lord is good. Everything the Lord does to his children is aiming for our good. Everything, even the hardships. His steadfast love endures forever. His covenant love will never let you go to the end of the days. Even the hard things that you have to go through, even the harsh things we're having to go through through this season, His love is not letting us go. He's redeeming even the hard things. His faithfulness endures to all generations. This is the nature of our God. He's good. He's loving in a way that endures forever. He's faithful throughout all the generations. And He is our God. And when you get this, it's going to make you want to rejoice. And here's the thing about the psalm. This is not even getting at Jesus. <laughs> I mean, we, we should be rejoicing like this before we even get to Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, oh my goodness. We see a beautiful, perfect Savior who deserves all the favor and glory and love of His Father. But you know what he does? He comes and takes our place and takes all the shame and judgment and punishment we deserve 
Also we, amen, also we can be adopted as his brothers and sisters. And so we can have a certainty that we will never let us go. And he sends his spirit, and when you get his spirit, he dwells in you so that your spirit cries out with his spirit. Abba, Father. Testifying with our spirit that we really belong to him and making us new, giving us a foretaste of what's coming. This is what should cause us to rejoice. The Lord, he is good and he loves us. If you want a window into this, I'm not going to fully unpack it, but 1 Peter chapter 1 unpacks it in a really crazy, beautiful way. I'm just going to read a couple things that he says. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, which we have, so that the genuine, tested genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes through its testing by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. It goes on and says the angels look at that and they wonder, why in the world would Jesus die for them? And we say, I have no idea, but we rejoice in it. And then he tells us a really key verse in 13. Set all your hopes on the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he returns again, you see the joy that we experience because we've been adopted, the joy that's breaking into the present through experiencing the Spirit's work, it's going to find fulfillment on the last day. And all that should move us to be the most joyful people on the earth. The thing that, that this psalm shows us is that the thing that God wants from us is for us to genuinely be excited about Him, to genuinely be giddy about Him, to almost be erupting in praise about Him all the time. What would happen if we did this? What would the world do if the world knew us to be a place of joy, love, giddiness? I'm not saying fakeness. I'm saying real depth to the joy. They would be knocking down the doors to get in. Our world longs for joy. It seeks it in all the wrong places. And yet the church is not conveying, at least in the last few years, very well, that this is a place where we have God who's a source of really rejoicing. What would happen if we embody this psalm? It would mean joy for us. God's inviting you to experience joy. It would mean communion with God, with one another. It would mean beautiful witness. Why do people fill stadiums each fall? It's the promise of joy. They don't come to places for angry debate over polemical theology. 
I'm not saying that doesn't have a place. I love theology. I love debate. But they would long to join us if we abounded in, and I can't help but shout for joy and seeing lives of glad service and gratitude to the God of grace. Charles Spurgeon said, the measured, harmonious, hearty utterance of praise by a congregation of really devout persons is not merely proper or decorous, but delightful. It's a fit anticipation for the worship of heaven. So in closing, Tim Keller gives four ways to apply the Psalms. This is, this is for every psalm, but, but he starts out, it's adore, admit, acknowledge, and aspire. So what do we see in this passage that we can adore God for? Oh my goodness. That he is the king and he's glorious and good. That he is not just the king, but he's our king and our father and he loves us. And we are his. How can we not adore him for that? And he gives us the privilege of being a real part of his pleasure that our praise matters to him. That's why he's calling us to worship. What can we admit? What can we repent of? There's lots to repent of, right? Oh my goodness. How I have failed profoundly this week in showing my daughters that I'm more joyous about knowing the Lord than I am frustrated when they misbehave. Okay, my wife has been out of town for a week. I've had my three younger daughters at home. There's been lots of fighting and yelling at our house. Not been a great week for Howard Davis. I've not really shined, okay? Problem when you preach is that God's like saying, hey, this is for you, buddy. And I'm pretty sure you, you can repent it in the same way. You can join me in repenting that we, Lord, we have failed to grasp your goodness to grasp your love, to grasp the privilege of belonging to you in a way that's shorted you praise. What do we have to acknowledge? Where do we have to give thanks? How can I think Jesus is the ultimate revelation of this attribute of God? We've talked about that. It's in Jesus that we find not only God to be good, but him to be radically good. Not only that we belong to him, but we have an eternal security that we will never lose. Imperishable infatable and finally what what can we aspire to how does this psalm show me what i should or can be or do how would i be different if this truth were powerfully real to me and you know what it is that we would be electric with praise to god that our neighbors our co-workers our family our friends would really be convinced of the goodness of god not only because we tell them but because they see it flowing through our life. You know, with my girls, I, I can tell them things all day long, and, and th- those things matter. But if my life doesn't echo those things, it's empty. But if my life echoes those things, if, if it puts an exclamation in those things, those are the things they really believe for me, they really take from me. So in closing, last week I did a crazy thing. I'm almost embarrassed to tell you about it. We live in Shreveport, Louisiana. I drove six hours one way to northern Arkansas. I stopped there for 10 minutes. I picked up a little dog, and I drove six hours back to Shreveport, Louisiana, all in one day. 
And I had a 13-year-old, the same 13-year-old I was telling you about earlier. Her name's Haven. She's a remarkable kid. She's been begging me for a dog for years. I've been giving her all the excuses why I shouldn't have one, and there's still plenty of excuses why we shouldn't have one. <clears throat> and she found the dog. I was hoping one two hours away or less, six hours away. And we got it. And you would have thought that I bought her a mansion. You would have thought I gave her the most precious gift in the whole world because she was oozing with thankfulness and joy and praise even, which she hardly ever gives to me. Dad, thank you so much. I love you so much. I'm like, I'm going to hold on to this for one day at least. If a 13-year-old can get that excited about a dog, then why do we get, struggle to get so excited about the Lord? Can we receive a gift that's infinitely better than a dog? A dog is awesome. But it leaves no words to describe the Lord and his love for us. So that's my counsel to you. But even more so, that's God's invitation for you, his call for you. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you that does not leave us in the dark. As to what you want from us, nor who you are to us. And we just confess, Lord, that we... Um, we're really forgetful of you in a way that cheapens our life and our experience and robs you of glory. And yet Jesus came so we wouldn't dwell in that pity, that failure, but he came to give us real life in himself. I pray that you would so help each person here to experience that so deeply that we abound in joy in a way that makes it real to those around us. God, I pray for anybody who's not hasn't experienced that joy here that you would cause them to come to know Christ in a way that they would really experience you and your love and joy. That's the heart, longing of their hearts, and they haven't experienced it yet. God, will you invite them to experience it through experiencing Jesus, who's died for them so they might be invited in. I thank you for inviting us in. Thank you for inviting us to praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.